tied into um, uh, children dropping out of sports. And there's a high, John will go further, but the huge um, uh, dropout rate of, of kids in sport. I really wanted to understand a lot more as to dig into why that was the case. And uh, uh, he is also a uh, former professional soccer player, was a University of Catamount uh, athlete and assistant coach. Uh, he is from Bend, Oregon. And uh, I was, um, yeah, we, we started talking to John about six months ago uh, to, for, for, for him to come to this, um, um, this event. And uh, just the messaging like we thought really resonated. Robert and I had a lot of time to chat a little bit about what we wanted to, some of the messaging to our parents about walking away. And we think he's, uh, he's fantastic and it was a big hit with our coaches yesterday. I was coming down last, uh, yesterday morning from Collingwood and was listening to his podcast on TEDx and um, just a really, um, uh, something that really kind of resonated with me was um, once upon a time I was an athlete and, and saw a lot of um, athletes just in terms of the relationship between parent, their parents and, 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 and my teammates or just seeing some. Sometimes I kind of just get this sense that just the expectations were perhaps too high for, for those parents and, and the, you know, maybe the, what I saw from teammates was that they just you know, didn't exactly know how to react to that and maybe, to be blunt, I think parents vicariously living through their kids in some cases. So, John uh, talks this message, he says it's, um, that came out of this podcast was, um, I love watching you play. And uh, really, you know, I thought that was a pretty great message and simple, but hits on so many levels and, and he'll go into it in more detail um, over the next 45 minutes to an hour. So, John O'Sullivan, come on up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. And, and um, I appreciate all of you uh, coming over here today, dropping your kids off, um, coming here. I want to make sure that this is about you. So like I said to the first group, if you have questions, please ask them. Um, there, there's no such thing as a bad question. I can talk in the generalities of the world that I live in and the traveling I do, the coaches that I speak to, the parents I speak to, but this is, you know, I also want to speak to your reality as well. So uh, please ask if you have, we had some great questions with the last group as well. And I think it makes it more, more fun. I want it to be more discussion than, than me talking. Um, but what I want to do today is, is kind of cover three things for you. Um, number one, some of the mythology around youth sports. You still have athletes who are, who are pretty young. So some of the mythology that causes kids to drop out that, that we hear from other parents about this, this is the path, this is what you have to do in order to be good and we'll dispel that. Um, number two, some of the psychology, so what will help your kids stick with it and perform their best. And then number three, um, what are some things that you can do just as a mom, as a dad, some of you might be a coach as well, to help your kids play better, all right? And everything that we talk about here, the biggest thing is this, that none of it is makes your kids less competitive. Actually makes them more competitive. We go, we teach this stuff um, in, in sports clubs all over the world. We work with coaches all over the world. My colleague, Jerry Lynch and I, who we have champions, work with some of the top NCAA teams. He works with a pretty good basketball team right now called the Golden State Warriors. Right, and so uh, the, when we were talking about, you know, what makes for competitiveness, and what makes for great teams, we're, we're talking about the same thing with these NCAA champion teams uh, as that we're talking about with you today. Okay, um, so I just want to tell you a little bit about my journey. Uh, as, as Scott said, I was uh, I grew up in New York, and I was a multi-sport kid, and 
school and I coached at the University of Vermont. I coached youth. I worked for the Portland Timbers for a while. And then um, as my own kids started playing sports, I kind of had this epiphany moment. And, and it, was at, it was at this game for the Mighty Unicorns, right? <laughs> and I was watching them. This is my daughter's six-year-old soccer team. And uh, <clears throat> I was watching this six-year-old soccer team. The, the giant blob and kids scored both goals and they were really happy and all that sort of stuff. And um, it was just this perfect, it was sport. It was, it was kids having fun, parents positive, the coaches encouraging them, kids trying their best and, and, and failing and failing badly, but getting up and not being afraid to try it again. And then on that day, there was a 10-year-old boys game right next door. And this 10-year-old boys game was, uh, you know, it was a competitive game. Right? It was competitive soccer, and it was really, it wasn't kids competing hard, it was adults competing hard, right? And, and I'm watching these kids, you know, the, the parents are yelling at the kids, and the coaches are yelling at the kids, and everyone's yelling at the 13-year-old referee, and, and I'm just thinking, this is crazy, right? And this kid hits a bad pass, and the other team steals it and scores a goal. And his coach jumps off the bench and subs him out of the game. Let's get out of the game if you're going to play like that. And he's walking off with his head down, and all the adults in his life are yelling at him because he made a mistake in a soccer game. I'm thinking, this is nuts. Who's running this league? And it was me. <laughs> it was my league. And I said, wow, i got to do something about this. So that was the day that I said, well, you know, I've been at this for a while. Maybe I can put what I've learned uh, into a book. I have a background, actually, a master's degree in um, <laughs> history. And, and so I liked research and writing and decided to go, guys, come on. Yeah, no problem. You missed the best joke, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, so I, so I wrote this book, Change the Game. There's this amazing research process of going through the psychology and education and child development and coaching stuff, and, and you know, constantly like turning my wife like, why didn't anyone ever teach me this before? This would have been I've been coaching almost 20 years, and no one ever mentioned any of this stuff that I think is like so helpful, right? And then, um, and then I, you know, talk to parents like yourselves. Actually, these are parents of, of kids who are older, right? And they were in college and young. And I asked them, what do you remember? You know, like, if you could go back and give yourself advice 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what would you tell yourself back then? And they kept saying two things. Number one, this goes by so fast. You know, you blink and there's no one left to drive. So just enjoy this moment, enjoy the time that sports gives you with your kids. And then number two, they said, I thought it was really important, you know, that we won at 10 years old or 11 years old at that soccer tournament or that hockey tournament. or like, That was the most important thing. We had to win that league. But my kids don't remember that. Right? They remember the man ride. They remember the hotel. <laughs> right? They remember the fun and the dynamic with their teams. They remember the adults that I surrounded them with, both positive and negative, and I wish I was more intentional about that stuff. And so that's how the Changing the Game Project was born. And now I get to go and present this all around the world uh, to coaches, to parents across all sports. I've been to Asia, I've been to Europe, and in the next couple of months I'm in Australia, I'm in Switzerland. Um, Switzerland during ski season. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just want to share that with you. And, and one of the really staggering things is, is this, right? That in organized sports now, pretty much across the globe, 
we lose three quarters of kids for sports by the age of 13. Kids are dropping out at this huge rate. And our schools are cutting physical education programs. Um, kids just don't go out on the street and play with their friends anymore. So we have this massive lack of activity and young children, the age that your kids are now, so what we would call adolescents, 10, 11, 12, 13, this is a critical age. Kids who are active at this age are far more likely to be active for the rest of their lives. One-tenth the obesity rate, far lower uses of, of drugs and alcohol, teenage sex, things like that, more likely to go to university, more likely to make more money in their lives, lower health care costs, and they're also more likely to raise active children. And kids who are not active at this age, that habit sets in is a really hard thing to break later. A lot of the kids who drop out of sport at this age, they don't go back to any sport ever if they leave with a bad taste in their mouth. But today's 10-year-old children, for the first time in hundreds of years, have a five-year shorter life expectancy so I think sport has become more important than ever that they have a good, healthy, positive sporting experience. And I don't think anyone here today um, came here because you, you, know, you, you disagree with that. So what we first have to do is sort of look at what some of the mythology around sports that we feel pressures as parents. And I'm first and foremost a parent of a 10-year-old and an almost 12-year-old. Right? What, what kind of stuff do we hear? And, and I call these sort of the, the big myths that cause kids to drop out. So, like I asked the other group, um, how many of you played sports growing up? Okay, what's different for kids, for your kids, than it was for you? That's it. So you smile right away. Uh, it's a lot more organized and more structured and more focused than it has. Yeah, at a younger age. Some of those hours instead, or something like that. Yeah. 
Anything else? Yeah. Uh, it seems a lot more expensive to play sports. Yeah. And getting your right. Yeah. So there's a lot more costs involved. And again, not not everything is, is, is bad. There's some great stuff. Certainly, the opportunities for girls in sports, some of the technological stuff. This stuff's great. But a lot of the things that we touched on, when you look at the science and you look at the research, <clears throat> they don't actually help more athletes do better. They 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 cause more more burnout and, and more dropout. And so um, I want to talk about these, these three big myths that I see driving a lot of this dropout. So myth number one. Gotta get those reps in. So the push for early specialization, right? This push, um, you know, to do more, 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 younger, 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 um, funneled in. You gotta choose now whether you're gonna be a hockey player or a soccer player. Way too young, way before the science says it's a good thing. So we have certain sports that sports scientists would consider early specialization. We figure skating and women's gymnastics. Right, that where those athletes actually hit their athletic peak 14, 15, 16 years old. But in most sports, people don't hit their peak until their 20s. So this idea that you have to pour in all hours exclusively into one sport from a very young age, it's actually just not backed by the science. Most uh, people who reach the near elite level compared to those who reach the elite level of sports, the people who reach the elite level are usually people who play more sports and specialize later, right? They poured in those hours in their middle and later teenage years, but not really young. They played lots of sports. They, they, they used sports that had lots of transferability amongst each other. Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, they talk about what, you know, he credits playing soccer growing up in Italy to one of the biggest things that made him a better basketball player, right? Best Canadian basketball player. Steve Nash. Started playing basketball when he was 13. He was a soccer player until then. It worked out okay. Right? So, so the, this idea that you've got to pour in all these hours really young, what we do know from the science is that children who only play one sport prior to the age of 12, 70 to 90% more likely to get hurt. Double the rates of overuse injuries. Far more likely to burn out. Far more likely to have psychological issues related to the sport. Um, and what we also know is that um, those kids, again, they are not necessarily, the U.S. Olympic Committee did a study and they found that in over th three Olympics, 93% of their Olympians played an average of three sports through age 13 or 14. Right? So it just prevents injury, it does better. And even in my sport of soccer, which is certainly an early engagement and early start sport, my friend, the performance guy at Manchester United, says every kid prior to 12 should play more than one sport. And if you go to Manchester United, every one of those kids, yeah, they're not playing travel baseball, but they're all multi-sport athletes. They do, they have parkour coaches. They teach gymnastics. They teach martial arts. You go to Barcelona, where I've been. Barcelona's not a soccer club. Barcelona is a sports club. Most of these European clubs are sports clubs. They have handball and they have basketball and they have all these other sports. And the kids who track into them at an elite level still get a multi-movement, multi-sport background. 
And it's so important because if you don't get that, what happens is you get hurt. If you don't move well, and I know all your kids are doing movement screens, part of this here today too, right? A movement screen is so, so important. Um, that, as I said to the first group, um, you know, if you're six-year-old, if you're eight-year-old who's struggling with reading, you wouldn't say, ah, she's just not a reader. Forget that. But we look at six and eight-year-old kids and we're like, ah, it's just not an athlete. These are learned skills. And so this multi-sport thing helps them um, do that. Now what happened was a couple years ago, especially, um, which fed into this push, it was a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. We talked about the 10,000 hour rule. I see a lot of you nodding your heads, right? Who knows that that's not true? Right? There's no such thing as a 10,000 hour rule. And what's really sad is I see coaches teaching high level coaching course talking about 10,000 hours and they're full of crap. There is no such thing. Malcolm Gladwell actually retracted, no one ever reads the retraction, right? <laughs> but he retracted that chapter. And the guy who did the research, Anders Ericsson, actually wrote an article that says, you know, when journalists do science, bad things happen. Because there's no such thing as a 10,000 hour rule. Anders Ericsson was doing research on uh, violinists in Berlin. And, and, and what made them experts. And he talked about the efficacy of practice. So what kind of practice are you doing? And are you getting feedback and all that sort of stuff? And he found that some of them had done 5,000 hours and some had done 25,000 hours, but on average, they were around 10. And then Gladwell turned that into the 10,000 hour rule. And then other people ran with it and turned it into some sort of like magic boundary, right? That when you cross the threshold, all of a sudden bells and whistles go off and you're now an elite athlete or an elite soccer player. That's not how athletic development works. There's so many other things that go into it, right? Genetics and motivation and family and uh, cultural, uh, some people even argue birth order, right? You're the fourth kid and you get your butt kicked all the time. You develop a few qualities trying to keep up with your older siblings, right? So, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into athlete development, uh, not just 10,000 hours. The 10,000 hours was used by people to got to get 10,000 hours, and the only way to do it is start younger and younger and younger. Right? Um, and it's just not true. So I'm not saying practice doesn't matter, because certainly practice matters, and certainly if you're going to be a great skier, time on the snow matters. Right? But there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. Now this sort of feeds into uh, number two myth, um, which is that childhood success is a great predictor of adult success. Um, so which kids, say prior to the end of puberty, as I say prior to 16, especially when we're making cuts and we're tearing teams and we're saying you are on the A team, you're on the B team at eight, nine, 10 years old, which kids make that team? Besides the coaching kid, that's a different talk. <laughs> which kids make that team? Was that? Probably kids who just have a bit of natural ability. Natural ability, but we often confuse natural ability with what? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking they're born earlier and they yeah. just are a bit older. Right? Yeah, well, being older. Yeah. The early developers, right? I grew up on Long Island. We called them Italians. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, right, so. <coughs> Yeah, these kids who are born, right? If you think of an eight-year-old who was born in January versus born in December, that's like 15% of their life, right? And those of us who have kids, right? Like, 
You know, if you have a third grader and a fourth grader, they're really different in their mental and their physical and their movement and all this sort of stuff. But we look at that and we go, oh, look at that one with all that natural talent. No, they're just older. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm now coaching. So all this coaching I've done my whole life, I now have my, my greatest coaching challenge ever. I have 32 12-year-old girls, right? And I had tryouts this year, and I just said to all the parents, like, you know, we're gonna have a very small A group and a very big B group, and there's gonna be a lot of movement because there's a big difference. And so then I said, any of you girls who were born in January or February, come up here and stand next to me. And any of you born in December, you come here and stand next to me. So this is the difference a year makes. So the idea that these kids would be stuck here and these kids would be stuck here, no matter what, makes no sense in sport development. But we are pushing this, you know, make cuts to your kids results, rankings, younger and younger and younger. And we're becoming so outcome focused at those age that we've stopped becoming process focused, right? And developing, what I talked to the coaches about yesterday is the idea that, especially with really young kids, all the kids that your kids, the ages that your kids are, performance is not an outcome, performance is a behavior. We are teaching behaviors, right? Show up, focus, work hard, compete, be a good teammate, communicate, whatever those things are, we need to instill great behaviors and because great behaviors over time lead to good outcomes. Early on, good outcomes often come from just you know, winning the calendar lottery, right? And, and so this is so, so important. I like this picture, this is from Fulham uh, in London, their soccer academy. These kids are born one week apart, 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Right? 12-year-old boy can have a five-year developmental age swing. He have the body of a 10-year-old, body of a 15-year-old. And we never play our 10s against our 15s, but it happens every weekend in 12 and 13-year-old soccer. Or hockey, or whatever. Graham, Graham was just telling me this story, right? His son played his first year of checking hockey. And it's a two-year age thing, and he's 90 pounds. And he's playing against 180-pound kids learning to check. <laughs> learning body check, right? Makes no sense. So, we have to be patient. I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories about being patient with our kids and knowing that every athlete has their own pathway. So when I coached soccer at the University of Vermont, there was a um, former hockey player there, and he was 24 at the time, and he still hadn't broken into the NHL. And, but this guy, he was the hardest working athlete I've ever met. And, you know, he used to come back in the summer, a lot of their alums did, and there was these amazing pickup games full of Olympians right outside my office, and I'd watch these guys play hockey. But he'd show up an hour before everyone in the morning, the weight room, then he'd do the workout with everyone else, then he'd stay late, then he would um, go play pickup, then he'd go home and he'd eat, and he'd come back later, he'd knock on our door, be like, hey, you guys wanna go for a run, or hey, can we get a three-side soccer game going on? Um, you know, just, he just worked and worked. And he's 24 and all the best hockey coaches and all the best scouts in the world think that he doesn't even belong in the NHL. <clears throat> he retired like two years ago. His name was Marty St. Louis. Mm -hmm. right? Marty St. Louis at 24 wasn't in the league. Two years later when Tampa Bay gave him a shot, right? guess what? He was the leading scorer, right? Then he won Lady Bing, he was an MVP, he was a two-time leading scorer, world champion, gold medalist for Canada, right? 
And at 24, the best people in the world couldn't identify him. So, when I meet coaches who are like, oh yeah, those nine-year-olds, I can pick them. You can't, right? You need to keep the most kids playing or skiing as possible. Best environment, good coaching, let them grow. See what happens, right? That's how you create a, a sports system um, that succeeds. Down in the United States, we're terrible. We're just lucky because we have so many people, right? It's basically we throw a bunch of eggs against the wall and hope one doesn't break. Right? That's our sport development system. Right? But what's happening is countries like Canada and like Australia and like Great Britain are getting smart and they're transferring athletes to sports that fit them better and then they're creating better development systems. And if we don't change and we're starting to, we're going to fall behind right? because our system is just getting lucky. We're not good, we're lucky. So those two feed into myth three, certainly where I'm from, right? That if we specialize early and we, you know, cut all the bad kids and keep the good kids and get on the right team, go to the right event, that this is an awesome investment, right? You guys are part of one of the most expensive sports out there, right? There's this financial return. And, and what happens is when we focus on that, the scholarship or the pro career, we lose sight of all the things that sport can and should be an investment in. Character development, life lessons, dealing with adversity, training hard, developing good habits that apply off the snow or whatever. So a scholarship can be the icing on the cake, but it can't be the cake. Right? It's amazing and certainly American universities now, the transfer rate, the dropout rate for athletes who have been so focused so long, I've got to get a scholarship. And they get there one year and they're like, I hate soccer. <laughs> <laughs> right? And they burn out and it's just awful. <clears throat> so, so these are, I think, the three big things that, that really um, are driving a big part of this dropout rate. That the, and, and because what they do is they really cause kids to lose ownership of the experience. Right? Kids are very much in the moment thing. They turn the focus off of things like enjoyment, and I want to talk about that next. So does anyone have any questions on any of these things before I move on? Yeah. Can you track anything about dropout rates for people who are in the beginning of the year versus the end of the year? You're saying have that? I? Yeah. No. Um, I, so the, where there is some really interesting research is um, actually a Canadian guy named Joe Baker. I think he's at York. Is that York in Toronto? York mm -hmm. I think he works at York now. And, um, what he has done, he's one of the world experts on developing sport expertise, and what he's found is that, um, you know, on these rep teams at young ages, these early born kids are way um, uh, overrepresented. But then when you look at high level sports, so I think he looked at like uh, NHL draft pick order and uh, and uh, transfer kitty for soccer players. Um, people born in the later part of the year are actually skewed to that. So those kids who aren't born young and, and maybe are a little smaller or whatever, um, and they develop that grit and that resilience and learn to, to struggle harder, they actually have a better chance of jumping to that elite level if they can stay in the system. Because most of the sports have like a cutoff thing, right? Like even in our sports, it's the end of the year, it's the cutoff. So mm -hmm. there's always skewing. And I think this is our this is our challenge. You know, what some sports have done, and I, I can't speak to skiing, I don't know enough about it, but I'll just say 
you know, in Europe now, what they've done with some of their soccer players is what they call biobanding, where they're grouping them by developmental age, right? So instead of calendar age, they're saying they, they can measure bone density and bone length and say this 13-year-old is really more like a 10-year-old, so let's run a tournament with all the kids who are kind of like 10 and see what they can do. Or this 11-year-old is much more like a 14-year-old, so let's push him up with, with them. Does that, does that make sense? So that, that's something that, that I've seen. Um, who, uh, Kip was telling me this last night. He said, you know, one of the things you see in, in skiing in Ontario a lot is oh, these young kids who are, who are just very big and early matures, and, and you know, because obviously skiing is, is a, you know, it's a speed thing and you know, how much mass and <laughs> can get you going down the hill. So on an easy, not so steep place, they, they're very dominant, but uh, whereas the kids who are small but technically good um, might struggle, but then when you get them on steeper, more technical stuff, those, those technically proficient skiers start to excel. And so we can't put too much into what are one kid's results on this hill. We really have to look into what's the inputs and then what are the reasons behind this type of success. Did you have a follow-up statement or question on that? No, I was just going to say, I think most of the players in the NHL were born in the first half of the year. Yes, they are. But the ones who make more money, a lot of them were born later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe Baker, you can, you, can, you can look it up. Or if you email me at the end, I'll actually send you the study. I got it on yeah, yeah. So, but, but your point is well taken, right? If we, you know, so like I told the last group, like at La Masia, where my friend's the coach in Barcelona, 92% of their uh, soccer kids are born between January and June. So if you, if 92% of your kids are coming from there, you're going to naturally have more kids who make it through from that. Oh, you know what? I mean, this isn't on my computer, and this is, uh, I can't scroll through my slides here, but there was a really interesting study done in, uh, it was in Serbia, where they looked at, like, the top 60 14-year-old kids in their professional clubs in soccer. And they took it to the top 60, and then they measured them, and of the top 60 kids at age 14, 60% were what they considered early matures, 30% were what they considered average and 10% were what they considered late maturing kids. And then they looked at them six years later, who had made it to a pro at, at 20. And of the, I think it was like, of the 60, like 18 of them were professional. And of that 18, 60% of the pros were from the late maturing group, right? So they develop those other things that when the physical piece catches up, it matters. So I always think of this, if you have a kid who's bigger than his or her peers, right, don't let them rely on just the athletic piece. Right? Develop the good habits, learn to train, develop grit, sometimes play them up in age or whatever it is so that they can't just get away with being physically better. And if you have a late mature, help her <coughs> frame that, right? That you know, we can't make you grow, but if you develop these habits and these things, guess what? That, you know, that'll help you later on when you do catch up. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other questions on that before I jump off? Cool. So the psychological piece now, I think it always starts with this, right? right? Why do kids play sports? Right? Why is this kid playing? <laughs> right? 
They play because it's fun. Every study ever done, and they ask kids, why do you play? Because it's fun. Nine out of ten. So this uh, woman, Amanda Bissick from George Washington, did the most recent study. Um, and she dove one step further. So 90% of the kids, number one reason why do you play? Because it's fun. And then so she said, uh, well, what makes it fun? And they came up with 81 characteristics that made sports fun. Uh, being respected and encouraged. Uh, playing with their friends. Learning new things. You know, being pushed. The excitement of competition. Wearing cool stuff. You know, those things made it fun. Uh, number 48 on the list was winning. Right? Number 81 of 81 was taking team pictures. <laughs> I hope there's no photographers. Right? So this is what makes sports fun. Now I think, you know, what's really interesting, she has a follow-up study that's not out yet, uh, which she calls the not fun thing. And kids came up with like 92 things that made sports not fun. 72 And things that have to do with kids, kids fooling around, kids not paying attention, those make sports not fun. So I think sometimes we say, well, fun is silliness. I get an email a month from someone saying, should my kid play the competitive club or the fun one? Right? This is a huge problem. It's supposed to be fun. You ask Olympians why well, you know why do you ski? It's because it's fun. I love this. Now we sometimes mistake uh, enjoyment and pleasure, and we cross those up, right? So I, I was the, this is the example I like. Ask this to the coach. Does anyone ever uh, run a marathon? All right, mile twenty to twenty six. Is there any pleasure? <laughs> Absolutely not. But do you still enjoy running? Yes. Yes. Right. Pleasure is in the moment, is this great? No. So we don't have to have pleasure in every moment of practice. It can be hard, it can be difficult, but they still have to say, man, I can't wait to do that again. Maybe not that workout, right? But I can't wait to ski again. I can't wait to play soccer again. That's enjoyment, the pursuit of something new, you know, a long-term thing. Sports has to be about enjoyment. The next thing sports has to be about is this idea that needs to be kind of free of interference. This is a little thing from a book called The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galway. Performance is potential minus interference. How your kids play is their potential, which is their genetics, their hours of practice, their motivation, all that minus interference. The things that interfere, right? I've never coached a team that showed up on Saturday and lost all its skill, right? But they do show up unfocused. They do show up not prepared. They do show up scared to compete, fearing failure. Right? Worried about critical coaches or critical parents. And so one of the things in the environment of sport is, is that things that make sense other places, we have sort of suspended common sense in sports. So I want to show you two videos to show you what I mean. So first video, this is my daughter. She played piano for three months. She's at her first recital. She's seven years old. She makes two mistakes. Watch what happens when she makes mistakes.
expects her to play Tchaikovsky in both hands or whatever. Piano is a really hard thing to do and to learn. But they don't think the piano teacher was going to yell at her. Right. I asked the last group, has anyone ever been to an orchestra concert where a parent yelled out the woodwind? The, the woodwinds are killing us tonight. <laughs> so we get this, right? We don't go to our kids' math class and yell at them to carry the one. We trust the process. We trust the learning. Yet somehow in sports, we want, uh, right away, we want the kids' version to look just like the adult version. And then we want to intervene to make that happen. And then here's what happens in like a six-year-old soccer game. Don't worry, it's not filmed here. to something in that split second in a game, right? Uh, a kid has to um, assess the situation, uh, think about all the solutions for this problem the game presents, choose one, if they're clever, add some deception, technically execute it, and then assess their decision that fast. So how much input can they possibly take? Okay. They can't. It just, it just interferes with it. All that input interferes with that decision-making process. When I worked at Manchester United, they said, you know, they have a rule for their 11s and under, uh, we don't coach when the ball's rolling. We let the kids figure it out. 
So um, I'm going to try to do my best here to make you feel like what, what it's like for a kid to be just have all that interference, whether it's the yelling from the sideline or it's just the interference of an inner voice saying, I hope I'm not disappointing my parents. I hope my parents aren't angry at me. If I don't win this race, my coach is going to be pissed and yell at me, whatever. And so this is called, uh, this is a psychological effect called the Stroop effect. Right, 1935, John, or not the year 1035, uh, 1935, year John Ridley Stroop. Um, it's a demonstration that cognitive interference, so mental interference, slows down the physical reaction time of a task. So we're all going to take the Stroop test together. So here's how it works. Out loud as a group, we're going to read all the words green, yellow, purple, red, blue, yellow, all the way down, all four. What was the time? Eight and a half seconds for the first group, so you don't want like the 16 and older parents to beat you. <laughs> right? So when I say go, uh, our mark gets that go out loud as fast as we can go. Our time ends when uh, the last person gets to the last word. On your marks, get set, go. Green, yellow, 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 So did anyone, like did anyone, the person uh, next to you or, or behind you get like a little bit ahead of him? Did he get ahead of you or behind? Way faster. Way faster. What happened when he got ahead of you? Oh, you quit. Oh, good. What a good example. <laughs> so you get distracted and you start like pouring more mental energy into it and it gets really hard to stay focused on the task. But you can usually power through that. All right. Now we're going to take the street test. <laughs> so instead of reading the word, these are all the same words, same font, you have to say the color. Right? So blue, red, green, blue, yellow, blue. Okay? Out loud, as fast as you can go. On your marks, get set, go. Right? 
And the inner voice that our athletes hear is usually what it says is what they hear the most from the influential people in their lives, which is us and which is their coaches. And so that voice has got to be good for them to ski like this and not like this. Right? So I just want you to go through that and think about that. And what I encourage you to do is go home and ask your kids who are all old enough at the age groups you're talking about here, what would you like me to say on the sideline of your game? What would you like me to do at the race? Where would you like me to be? Is it important that you whiz by me and you hear me screaming? Or should I just meet you at the bottom? And then, you know, listen to what they say. It might give you some great insight. One of the things that I taught coaches yesterday is in my coaching, uh, when we do goal setting in this, I, I have my players write down, they, they finish this sentence for me. One thing I wish my coaches knew about me that they don't, that would help them coach me better is dot, dot, dot. And the insight that I get from kids is unbelievable. And a lot of them say, you know, is that my parents make me really nervous. Can you play me on the opposite side? <laughs> right? No, but I will go talk to your parents and let them know that, right? And you should too. So getting that insight, talking to your kids might give you some little bit of insight of, wow, how can I help? And, and again, it doesn't mean that maybe what you've done in the past hasn't been with great love, but it doesn't also mean that it's helpful. Or, right, who are you, how many of you have more than one kid? Right. So they're exactly the same, right? <laughs> no, so your kids are totally different. So what works with one might not work with another one either. So one might go, oh, this worked great for here, but, but not for here, right? Um, just an interesting US story. Um, you know, I was just down at the USOC and working in Ski Club Vale with uh, one of Michaela Schifrin's youth coaches, right? So obviously, you know, on track to be the best female skier of all time, youngest World Cup champion. And she had a brother who was a very good skier as well, right? College All-American, right? But when I asked him, you know, he's not, he wasn't on the World Cup, it wasn't that. And he said he couldn't, in the starting gate, mentally he couldn't hack it. Right, he couldn't take the, the, the cauldron that was the Schifrin family, right? Mikhail can, and she lives a very different thing. Two kids growing up under the same roof with the same parents, one might be the best of all time, one was a really darn good skier, but yet could not deal with the mental side of things. So just be very careful in A, talking to your kids that you don't compare one to the other, B, certainly looking at your own kid's path compared to someone in their age group and thinking that they should be exactly the same because everyone can get to different places at, at different times um, and might need something different at that stage of their development. Right? So understand the pathway. Um, I think this is important uh, to cover as well. Carol Dweck Mindset, who's read it? Uh, twice? Oh, you've heard it, yeah. Or if you've only got 15 minutes, her TED Talk, The Power of Yet, worth watching. This idea that there's two types of mindset, right? We all have either fixed or growth. Fixed mindset, my abilities are fixed. They can't be changed. I either got it or I don't, right? I lost the race. I just am not good at skiing. 
I failed my test, I'm just not good at math. Versus what Joanna calls the growth mindset. Effort is everything, right? It's not about what I am today, it's what I could be with effort and application. I failed my math test, I need to study. I lost the race, I need to practice more. This is the high performing mindset. And what Dweck has found in research is oftentimes mindsets can be um, changed simply by how we praise. When you praise outcomes, you are a winner, you're so artistic, you're so beautiful, you're so smart, you actually instill a fixed mindset. I get praise when the outcome is good. And what she found is you instill a gross mindset when you focus on the process. You scored three goals. I noticed you showing up at practice early. I noticed you've been working on those things. That's why you scored three goals. Working hard. Right? So we turn the focus to the praise. We turn the focus and the praise on the process of getting better. And this isn't about being false praise. This is just turning that when, when the outcomes are good, you're, you're better off not saying, wow, you're the best. You're better off saying, you know what, you're a super hard worker, and that's why you got that. Right? And that helps instill this, this growth mindset and this idea that anything can be learned. Uh, last piece that I think is important because I wanted you to know what I talked to the coaches about yesterday is this idea of quality coaching. That I, certainly at the USOC, and I, and I said to the coaches, I was going back and forth yesterday thinking about should I present the USOC thing to a bunch of Canadian coaches, but it was written by a Canadian, so I think it's okay. Right? <laughs> They have a new quality coaching framework. What are we as coaches from the Olympic level all the way on down responsible for? Knowledge of the sport, knowledge of ourselves, knowledge of the importance of connections, right? The right context, right? What ages and stages are athletes at? And then no longer as a coach can we say I'm doing my job if we're only, when we're talking about athlete outcomes, checking the technical boxes of of competency in sport, right? Well, I did my job because, uh, you know, she can edge better and uh, her hands are in a better position and whatever in skiing, right? Or I taught a soccer player to kick it better and pass it better and receive it, right? No. So what we're saying about athlete-centered outcomes is this, that it's our responsibility as a coach to develop competence, confidence, right? So self-belief and work and, and positive self-worth, connection, amongst teams, and character, right? It's our job to develop character, and that we should be assessing our coaches in those four areas. And if they won all their games and taught sport, the kids aren't confident, the team hates each other, and they're a bunch of cheaters, I've not done my job, <laughs> right? And we should be able to assess people for that, hold people accountable for that. And I hope after yesterday, a lot of these coaches will go back to their clubs and, and make this part of, of this idea of this is how we're assessing <coughs> So, any questions on any of that before I jump into this last piece here? Okay, so in my book, uh, Change the Game, I, what, what I talk about is like the, the, seven, the seven C's of a high-performing state of mind, right? So common sense and perspective, the right conditions, communication, caring, Control, competence, confidence. And how all these things work together, right? If an athlete takes more control and ownership, they'll practice more. When they practice more, they develop competence, and competence builds confidence. And when you're confident, you're feeling better, you'll own it more and go do more. 
right? So all these things feed together. So I want to talk about a couple of these places. Now, number one, ownership of the experience. I mentioned Joe Baker before from York, right? He says there's three essential ingredients for any athlete to succeed in a sport long-term. Ownership, enjoyment, because those two things build intrinsic motivation to go out there and do the work, and develop the habits, and just do the stuff day after day that it takes to be great. Everyone says, I want to be Steph Curry, the basketball player. But no one wants to be Steph Curry, the 16-year-old who showed up before everyone else. The 16-year-old who would not leave the court every day after practice until he swished five free throws. Not made five free throws, swished five free throws. All right? Everyone wants to be part of the outcome. Very few people want to be part of the process. Right? Athletes who own the experience develop the intrinsic motivation to be part of the process. So we always have to do that, right? And I, we were joking before, but this idea of, you know, if a parent is saying, we struck out 10 batters and we scored three goals today, your kid doesn't know them, right? Yeah. Same thing if you, uh, if a basketball player was supposed to switch by three goals before he goes home, you shouldn't be saying, you're going to switch by before you come. Right. You should not. Because that's your ownership. Yeah, that, that's yours. That, that's them saying, I gotta get this done today. Right? And, and I think that's the most important thing. Now, as a parent, we can support our kids' goals and we should push our kids to the things that they want out of this. And if they say, I want to, you know, make this level of ski team next year, then you can say, Well, what are the commitments you're going to make to do that? And then you're there and you're pushing them and you're reminding them. Hey, this is what you said you wanted to do, so how can I help you do that? Because it might mean that I'm driving you to this thing, or we're going to dry land training, or we're doing these other things. That is your, that's our role in that. But it's not to say, this is what you're going to be next year, and this is how we're going to do it. Um, because they'll comply for a while, but unless it becomes theirs, they'll eventually push back. What I've seen from kids who don't want the same thing as their parents and the parents don't want to listen is usually they start getting injured a lot, right? These injuries that, you know, they don't show up as like, you know, a double leg fracture, they show up as my back hurts. And I'm not saying that there's not injuries, but you know, these reasons. My brother lost his love and his ownership of soccer, he's younger. He tells a story that breaks my heart when he's like 16 years old, he was playing, he was a very, very good player, he was playing on a team and he went to Minnesota for a soccer tournament 15 minutes into the first game. Someone cut his legs out from under him when he went up for a head ball and he fell back and he had a compound fracture of his wrist. And he said he looked at his hand and he looked at the bone sticking out and the first thing that went through his mind was, sweet, I don't have to play soccer for the rest of the summer. Mm -hmm. Right? I get to go fishing. That was his thought, right? He lost ownership. Um, because he'd be dragged in a million places, but people stopped asking him what he loved, which at that time was music. Right? And he fell back in love with soccer eventually, and he, you know, he played two years in college and stuff like that, and played in a band and, and did all that. But he lost ownership. So ownership is huge. Number two is the right conditions, especially that we make it safe to make mistakes. We make it safe to stumble, we make it safe to fail. Right, that we don't protect our kids 
from all adversity, but that we also are very mindful of the different situations and places. Because one thing's kid, one thing is that one thing that kids say that it's rarely safe to fail is the ride home after games, right? or after races, because we unlock in the car and we're going to make it a teachable moment. <laughs> We don't take into account their state of mind or what they do. There's actually university level research out of Australia about this. Just that, you know, especially when they've had a great result or a not so great result, um, that's when it's at its worst. Right? And we and, and we we just have to remember that over and over and over. So I have a quick video here for you um, from an HBO documentary called Trophy Kids. Um, about the ride home. This is this is not actors. Did you tell us the truth about Jim? How many times? Are you sure? But I feel right next to you. You're not getting it done. Let me explain something to you. If you do something wrong, do I tell you? Yeah. I correct you. Or I tell you so you can correct it. How do you know what to correct if you don't even know why he pulled you out of the game? What did I tell you about that? What, are you scared of him or something? So why don't you go ask him? Like right now, you know we're going to have this conversation after the game. You know what's coming. And this is part of you becoming a young man. If someone does something, you're just going to take it. So if I was going up to you and just slap you back in your face, what are you going to do? Just turn around and be like, I don't know why that guy did that. It doesn't make any sense, Jack. You act like you're 10 or 9 or 8. You're just going through the motions. If you're going to be selfish, you know what? You have other brothers and sisters. And we'll take you from out of that school and give them a chance to put them in the private school. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. It confuses me. What's the problem? should have expectations. And and I agree with that. Right? Just not there. That's just hard to watch. It's just hard to watch, right? And and there's a kid who you what he said, I feel like every time I get in the car, I did something wrong. And his dad, trying to help his son, suck the love of sport out of him. So it was really interesting was we put this on our Facebook page and there's this great back and forth. And then this guy writes in, he goes, I was the cameraman. 
I was sitting in the front seat, and yeah, it was hard to watch. Um, and he said, you know, the dad was a college football player, drafted in the NFL, got arrested, didn't make it. So his son was going to make it in his place. But he never asked his son that. Right? His son didn't want to do that. It wasn't his goal. Right? So I'm not saying that we can't have, you know, you all make big sacrifices so that your kids can escape. But let's pick and choose the time and take into account their state of mind when we decide to have the conversations about is this the path that we're still going down or hey, you know what, this is an expensive path and uh, if we're going to keep doing this, you have certain expectations that you have to meet, right? That's okay, but just we have to pick and choose those moments, right? Especially when our kids are young. One of my favorite stories is my, um, <laughs> when my, when my son was five years old, because like, this is hard, right? My son was five years old, first soccer game, I was so proud. He walks up his first game, he goes, nah, I'm not playing. He walks up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So we go to practice that week, he plays. Game two, we walk up, game before is going on, parents are screaming, going crazy, and then I just see my son, he's like, oh my God, you know? So game two starts, he goes, Dad, I don't wanna play. And he walks off again. And I was embarrassed, and I was angry, and I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be the all-star coach, and he's, he's Parents, like, what do they think of me? My own son won't play. He doesn't care if he found cricket or something. He's like, perfectly happy. <laughs> Over there. <laughs> and so we get in the car after the game. I'm like, so I, DJ. And all of a sudden, wham, I get karate chopped by my wife. Sitting next to me. I was like, what was that for? She's like, really? Didn't you write a book about this? <laughs> So leave that time to them. Now, if you, this is important, right? If you, if your kids bring up the sport, the game, whatever, have a conversation. But don't be the one who initiates it. And if you're, you've always been the initiator, and now you're like, oh man, I'm not gonna do that anymore, don't go cold turkey or your kids are gonna think you're really pissed off at something. Right, so just say, hey, you know what, I realize I've been doing this, is that something you like, or is there a better time to have this conversation, right? It makes a huge, huge difference. And when you combine this, right, letting this post-game debrief time, you know, belong to your kids with caring and unconditional love, with, as Scott said, five simple words. I love watching you play. I love watching you race. I love watching you compete. I love watching you ski, which is what I all say to my kids every weekend when we go to the mountain. I just love skiing with you guys. I don't care how fast we go or wherever we go. Um, I just love being out here with you. It makes such a difference. Because it frees them from that burden of, uh, I'm you know, my love, parents' love is dependent on whether I won or lost or had a good race today. Um, I get more phone calls and emails about this than anything else. And they all kind of all start with, I thought that was dumb, or I thought that was simple. But they all end with, and it changed everything. It changed everything. And these are athletes who are in college and young kids, right? The, one of the first ones I ever got was from this guy, Peter Smith, who's the men's tennis coach at USC. Five-time NCAA champion coach, former professional athlete, um, one of the best coaches in this sport in the world. And Peter Smith's three kids all wanted to quit tennis because he could never stop being coached and just be dad. So practice never ended and the matches never ended. And he was like, man, you know, 
He goes, my friend gave me your book and I read it and I just started saying, man, I just love watching you guys play. Let's go surfing. What do you want to eat? Right? And he said, at first my kids were like, where's our dad? <laughs> he said, over time, all of a sudden, guess what happened? He said, the less I did, the more they wanted to practice. It became their sport again. The more matches they wanted to play because they weren't afraid of how I was going to react, whether they played well or not that we could have a conversation sensible. So they started actually coming to me for advice because they knew I could help them at a time when they were actually ready to learn and take my advice. And last, uh, last year, a year ago September, I was in LA and we were supposed to have lunch and he had to cancel because his oldest son, the one who had said, Dad, I'm quitting tennis, can't take this anymore. He was in the finals of the US Open, junior doubles, one of the best young tennis players in the world. Plays for his dad at USC now. Great relationship, father, son, and coach, athlete, because his dad was able to take a step back, right? And just love watching his kid play. So if you take nothing from this, right, it makes a huge, except that, it makes a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. So my last piece is this, and I always play this video, is we need to create a movement. We can't keep having three quarters of kids drop out of sports. My last video for you, how do we create a movement in three minutes or less? If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. He must be easy to follow. Now, here comes the first follow with a crucial role.
still waiting for my first talk where someone's like, I'm on that video. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so I think, you know, I, again, I get to travel around the world and, and help to create the, this movement. And, and movements don't require big groups of people, they require small groups of committed people committed to making change, not caring who gets credit and not caring that it might not happen in their lifetime, but it's worth making anyway. And we can't keep having so many kids drop out. I think 99% of parents in sport are phenomenal. They love their kids, they just want to help. As youth sports clubs, we do a poor job at, at saying, hey, here's how you can help. Here's the things that are helpful, here's the things that you might do that you think are helpful, they're not helpful, right? And how can we work together? I talked to the coaches yesterday about the importance of engaging all of you. We must not, you know, we don't say don't call, don't write, don't make eye contact. We need to engage our parents, all right? Because you are that inner voice. You are that voice that your kids are hearing and you're so influential in their lives that we just need to help you to help us coach to help them, right? And right now, I think it is risky to ask clubs, hey, let's hold our coaches to a higher standard. Let's, let's not just develop competency, but let's develop character. Let's make this about you know, teaching values, and we just happen to do it through skiing or hockey or soccer. We can do that. So just a couple you know, mindset I talked about. Jerry Lynch's great book, Let Them Play, The Power and Joy of Mindful Sports Parenting. You can find these on Amazon and everything like that. Um, two for one sports, just a really good multi-sport camp organization trying to, you know, chip away at the early specialization. Um, I have a couple books here, if you're interested, uh, my book, Changing the Game. If you grabbed um, one of the sheets, at the bottom there, there's a link where you can just sign up for our email list and you can get the PDF of that book for free if you want it. Um, and then... Um, I also have, if you haven't followed our blog, we, we just went and archived all our articles into this little PDF, this resource booklet, um, broken up by articles for coaches, articles for parents, articles to share with your athletes, articles for sports clubs, um, and you can just grab them all there. It's just like a five-page PDF with uh, a link, you know, a hyperlink to each. We have a podcast. I know we have at least one podcast listener in the room here uh, called The Way of Champions. Um, where we're interviewing Olympic medalists and world champions and top coaches and top sports scientists trying to you know, get you that great stuff. And then obviously there's, you know, my, there's my direct email at top. So if you have a question or, or something or you want to you know, bring this message to where you live, like this is what we do. We're out here pounding the pavement all the time trying to create this movement. And we hope that you will join us because we need first followers. Keep your shirt up. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot, John. Um, we got maybe three or four minutes for if anyone got questions or yeah. fire away. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah.